Welcome to Transformed by Grief, a call-in show to help you find a way forward while coping with loss. Brought to you by Funeral Radio. And now your host, Diane Gray. Hey everybody, this is Diane Gray. Um, I'm here to host tonight's show called Transformed by Grief, How to Live an Abundant Life After Loss. Uh, I'd just like to give a quick shout out and a thanks to Funeral Radio Network. Um, This whole show came about because in... Uh, 1996, my son Austin Gray was diagnosed with a rare neurodegenerative disorder, and Austin was four years old, turning five, and my world was turned upside down. And like many of you who have lost a loved one, you know, grief can kind of come in shocks and waves. And a lot of the questions that I'm asked have to do with, Diane, how on earth am I going to pick up my life? And we're going into New Year's, and what do I do? And, you know, I've been there. Uh, My son was diagnosed, actually, on Christmas Eve, and he died in February of 2005 at the age of 14. And one of the things that I discovered is that there are some things that we can do to positively transform our lives from that moment where we think that there is nothing more that we can do rather than lay in bed all day, day after day, or lay on the floor or sob all day, that we'll never have a life again. So Tyler Frazier and I, we were talking about this show, and I'm really excited about it. So thank you so much for joining us here. Um, Tonight's guest, we're going to have Ken Ross, who is the son of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Many of you might know Elizabeth, who uh, is credited with being a pioneer in the hospice industry. Um, um, Elizabeth was a prolific author, psychiatrist, humanitarian. She authored 24 books in 34 languages, including best-selling on death and dying, also The Tunnel and the Light on Grief and Grieving, Life Lessons with David Kessler, and numerous others. Most of all, I'm really excited tonight. Ken is going to talk to us a little bit about, you know, his mom was credited with being the death and dying lady, but she really was all about life and living. So we're going to talk to him about that. But also, we're going to hear from some callers tonight, and please call in. We would love to hear you. So, um, Tyler, why don't you go ahead and connect us to our first caller? Go ahead, caller. Um, Hi, how are you? Hey, good evening. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I This really is specifically about um, my very best friend growing up and an issue that her family's going through. Is it okay to ask a question about that? Yeah, of course. Anything you want. Okay. Um, Well, uh, as I said, my very best friend growing up, her brother passed away recently. Um, Her parents had been struggling with their relationship with him for the past 20 or 25 years, uh, various issues that he had, and his family didn't agree with the way that he was living his life. And um, toward the end of his life, he actually moved in with his parents because he could no longer take care of himself financially and otherwise, and um, he actually passed away in his parents' home, and his mother and father are very angry at him still uh, and are having difficulty reconciling, you know, their feelings about this, and it was very um, uh, upsetting, to say the least, and and I was just wondering if you might have any um, advice that I could give to them about how they could move forward after losing someone um, Sure. Uh, first of all, I'm really sorry about your friend's loss, and and it, it's it's uh, loss of this nature 
uh, as is loss of all types, but especially when things are conflicted at the end of life and, and with a young adult that, that passes, as in this case, um, it's especially tough. And it can bring up things, I am not kidding, from generations past. You know, frequently the things that people uh, fight about after the death of a loved one, there's things that happened 25, 50 years ago, right? Or maybe it happened with their parents. Or their parents' parents. But all of this stuff just churns. And your question was a really good one because you're standing by and you're watching this family, in in a sense, at least this is what I gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, that implode in a way on top of the death of their child. Is that is that what I'm getting? Yes, that's true. So one of the things that um, I've heard from dying patients, um, as they're is as they know they are getting ready to pass, they ask for one thing. And ironically, I can share this with you. I don't share this very often, but. When my son was dying, actually on his deathbed, the last thing that he blinked because he was nonverbal was love in my family. And uh, it was the only thing he asked for. And I think when patients die, and I would bet with all of my heart that this 25-year-old would ask for the same thing, was love in his family. No person wants to die and leave a mess and anger, and unhappiness, and such. And I would remind his mother and father, look, regardless of what this young man's life experience was, I am sure that he loved them with all of his heart. And I am sure that his soul and his spirit would want them to be at peace and feel love. Life happens sometimes, and it's ugly, and what we can do to honor these loved ones is to really remember them in their their best place and phase. I want to ask you, what do you think is causing most of the anger with them? Well, um, like I said, it had been quite a long time. Uh, he had a baby, and they are now raising the baby, and they were mm-hmm. just frustrated because they thought they had done a really good job of raising him. His sister turned out beautifully, and there are so many things that they just couldn't bring him to realize and understand about his own life. And I think they have a lot of frustration about that. I think they might have guilt that they might not have done every single thing that they could have done. Um, I think they're angry that he's gone, and they can't. They no longer have the ability to fix him. You know, and they and they sure. also can't say they're sorry because they just woke up one morning and he was gone. You know, so. right. So there are multiple issues there. First of all, guilt can be devastating, but we have right. a choice. We have choices to make. You know, there is absolutely nothing that they can do at this point. Right? There's nothing. There's right. nothing that they can do. I, I got some great advice from this physician um, following my own son's death, and you know, I was distraught. And I, I, too, had guilt. Did I do enough? What could I have done? And long story short, it, it really boiled down to this. The doctor asked me a question. And you can ask them this. Did you do everything you could at that time with the information that you had? What do you think they would say? 
I think they would have said for years now that they went above and beyond what any normal, you know, set of parents could do or any person could do for another individual. I think they know deep down in their heart that they did everything they could do. And then our job as a loving community is to remind them and ask them that question because the answer is yes, right? The answer is yes, I, I, I did. Huh, I did. And sometimes in asking that question, it forces them to answer yes, you know? And the more we can encourage an affirmative response to questions, you know, we do an amazing job as human beings on the planet of beating ourselves up. (laughs) And not a great job sometimes at telling ourselves, I did the best job that I could with the information I had at that time. And you can write down that question for them, stick it in an envelope, and have them put it on their refrigerator. You know, sometimes when people get stuck in negative, repetitive cycles, it's a matter of breaking the cycle. Physically giving them a a cue to break that cycle of negative thought. Give them sticky notes. Send them a card. But anything that encourages them to answer that question themselves. And I bet you, you can also, um, are they uh, religious or faith-based? Yes, they're Christians. So you know what? I would also remind them that God doesn't want them to beat themselves up. God knows that they did everything they could. But God's got it from here. If they are of faith, you know, and, and you would know this probably better than anyone, since I'm guessing that you're a part of their greater faith community and also a faith-based person. God does not want them to beat themselves up, and God's got this. This young man is in the palm of God's hand, I'm guessing, and as much as you can, I would just try to remind them uh, of that. Does that help? Oh, it definitely does. Thank you so much. I'm I have to admit that I've been remiss in sending them things along the way, and I'm definitely going to Make a note of doing that uh, on a frequent basis now and and just remind them, like you said, you know, they did every single thing they could because we all know they did. So uh, the the remind the reminders help and especially because at night, um, eleven PM, two AM, four AM when people wake up in the middle of the night and that's when those you know, those negative thoughts fester and they pop up in dreams and they go for water uh, in the middle of the night and they open the refrigerator, they'll see that note on the refrigerator door. They'll see that note on the bathroom mirror. You know, anything that you can send them that is a physical, in-their-face, loving reminder, it really helps. I'm glad you called in. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Call in again. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Guilt, as we know, and, and shame that goes with guilt, Um, are two of the toughest things to overcome in this grief process. I mean, not every situation is riddled with guilt, but many, many of them are. And um, sometimes it's the little reminders that we send to people along the way that can really help uh, the grieving shift from being stuck in in a place of strife and, and profound grief and move them on into, you know, abundance and at least peace. Um, Tyler, do we have another caller? I believe we do. Go ahead, caller. Hi, uh, a, a friend sent me this link, and, and I've been listening to you, you describe this other thing with the other lady, and, 
and and that's all well and good. And I, I listened to you when you said, you know, you should know that you've done everything you could. But what do you tell people who didn't do everything they could? Uh, I've had someone pass very near and dear to me. But frankly, you know, I'm an Army veteran. I'm a retired cop. I'm not big on and never have been showing that loving, caring, kind side. So when you when you tell a lady, you know, that other lady, well, I'm sure they've done everything they could. But how do I wake up now or go to bed at night now knowing, man, maybe I didn't do everything I could? How do I go to bed at night and get up the next morning? Um, That's where grace, I think, is really important. If, you know, if you're talking about yourself with a loved one, um, first of all, uh, I'm sorry, because I think what you're, you're expressing must be really, really hard, you know, and it's hard. We're, we're all um, human beings living in, a, in, on an imp- in an imperfect situation in an imperfect world, you know, um, and grace and um, love of oneself in spite of one's flaws is really tough. Um, and you're right. There are a lot of people on this planet that go through a situation and say, oh my gosh, I could have done that so much better. I didn't do this. I didn't have that conversation. Uh, I would offer up two very practical things and then we'll discuss the third thing, which has more to do with, um, one's heart. Two very practical things that, that really do help, um, and this is kind of common practice, but I would sit down and I would write the, the deceased a letter um, or type them out a letter in email format if you want. I am sorry. I am sorry. I am sorry. I am sorry. And I will, uh, I should have, I wish I did, I couldn't do, I didn't do. Obviously, there's no place to send it. Yeah, I mean, I, I lived in that world for years where, frankly, sorry, I didn't cut it. Uh, you know, you either did or you didn't, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. So what is your biggest regret? I, I didn't call when I could have. I didn't go when I should have. I didn't, you know, I wasn't as, as kind and gently and huggy as I probably could have been. That's mm-hmm. not me. I'm not kind, gentle, huggy person. I kicked indoors. Right. I, you know, shot back when shot at. Right. You know, well, you're that's, not alone. That's my life. Mm-hmm. And you know what? The, first of all, I want to thank you because, first of all, you're really honest. And this is a great big planet filled with lots of people who all have different personality types and uh, different abilities to be expressive or not so much. But they, but it doesn't mean you don't feel. And you do feel because this is still weighing on your heart. So I would say, first of all, let's talk about, you know, is it possible for you to write a letter to a loved one in that family and just say, I realize I could have done more. It doesn't have to be a novel. It can be a two-sentence letter. I care. I wish I had done more. Know that it's still with me. Sincerely. And if you don't want to send it, don't send it. Because sometimes the practice of getting it out of you is as healing as it is for someone. Also to know that many times, many, many, many times, if you carry guilt about not doing more or not doing something, there's a chance that that family member 
who was a part of the, the person's life that died, they didn't really notice as much. You knew. You knew your heart. But there's a really good possibility that, that they didn't really know as as much or, or take it, you know, personally that you didn't, couldn't. People are typically pretty accepting. You know, one of the things I, I learned even through my experience, uh, and this is a true story, <laughs> that when my son died, I went to this dinner in Isla Morata afterward, and it was a big family gathering, and everybody, you know, was calming, and we hadn't been together in a while, and if you know our family, we're we're a little bit quirky anyway. We're, you know, some of us are close and funny and humorous, and others are just kind of scratching my head and go, Really? And it was right after my son had passed, and uh, I was sitting at the table, um, and one of my parents, out of nowhere, apologized to me. And he said, listen, I wasn't there. I I didn't do enough. I didn't say enough. I didn't show up. I should have done more. Four or five sentences. I started sobbing like a baby. (laughs) (laughs) because that was all I needed to hear. That was all, that was all that was said. And it was like this warm healing blanket. I had never thought of it in a million years. Okay. It hadn't even crossed my mind that that person should have done more, but that person, he thought he should have done more. And it was interesting. And and that's why nobody, nobody that knows me would, you know, think that that I have that that issue going on or that that you know whatever but I know I mean I I, I feel it then then I would I would offer that up write it call it email it whatever works for you and I would just send it out there because I can tell you having it happen to me that it was profoundly healing and then it was funny because his wife that was sitting at the table said nothing and I, that was the person that I would expect would have said, hey, I'm really sorry that I didn't do anything. And, you know, but people are who they are, right? You can't yeah, really, yeah, you know, you can't expect a rabbit to be a dog. It's just not going to happen. <clears throat> but with that said, those four healing sentences, uh, I'll never forget them. And they've really helped me in so many ways to move forward after after the fact. Does that make sense? Yeah, but what are the, you, you said there's what for? Well, and, and so the other thing that you can do, I'm a big believer in prayer. I think there is a time when we know that we were not our best selves. And I don't know if you're a person of, of faith, but if you are, I would suggest hop on those knees, offer up that prayer and say, you know what, God, I did not do the best that I could have in that situation. And if that opportunity comes around again, either A, let me do a better job, and B, if it doesn't, then let me do something to make it right with the other person or another family member, or C, please please forgive me. And, and I, I know that heartfelt prayer, and you probably know this too, I, I think one of the things that you can do is forgive yourself for being perfectly human. And you know what? Thank goodness we're not, you know, all of us the same, lovey, touchy, huggy, feely. It's, we're, this is a beautifully diverse planet. 
And if you look back to the 50s, really, really, no man would have ever even thought about being the lovey, you know, huggy, touchy, feely person who sat in the delivery room, right? All the the babies came. But times are changing, and I want to commend you for saying, hey, this is my deal. This burdens my my heart. But I I would just encourage you to be gentle, you know, be gentle with yourself because, you know, uh, the fact that you care this much, I'm betting that your friend or your family member, whoever it was, uh, really knows, you know, that, that you have a big heart and it's just that you're just not the most expressive person outwardly. I bet that you're expressive in other ways. <laughs> yeah, my troops would have told you the same thing. <laughs> all right. Does that, does that help at all? It's a plan. Uh, I don't know that I'll do everything, but I am. I have a plan. So, okay. Thank you very much, and I I am awesome. going to thank my friend who sent me this. That's uh, thanks. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for calling in. Wow, that's a that's a really tough situation, and I think we're going to continue to hear more and more of that. Because, um, you know, we have more and more troops that are returning to the States. We have a lot of people that are uh, dealing with really tough situations where they've been, as, as the caller said, you know, he was a cop and, and he, he was retired now and he's been in the military. And you can't be that lovey-touchy-huggy person all the time. And um, I really hope that in, in his case... Um, you know, he can find a way to make peace with himself because I'm betting that his family and his loved ones think he's a pretty great guy. Tyler, did we have another caller? Uh, we do. Go ahead, Mr. Ross. Hi, this is Ken Ross. Hey, Ken Ross. Thanks for joining us today. How are you? My pleasure. Good, thanks. So, listeners, um, I want to introduce Ken Ross, as we discussed in the intro. Ken is the son of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and Elizabeth is the um, is credited with uh, being one of the primary founders of the hospice movement, and as well, Elizabeth was a psychiatrist, a humanitarian. I believe, Ken, and correct me if I'm wrong, she wrote 24 books? Uh, that's as close as I can count. <laughs> <laughs> 24 books in 34 or 35 languages. Um, including on death and dying, grief and grieving, life lessons. Uh, my personal favorite, the tunnel and the light, um, amongst you know a plethora of others. Elizabeth, to me, really, uh, so many people um, talked about Elizabeth in terms of being the death and dying lady. Um, Elizabeth was one of the first um, physicians, and her time on death and dying came out in 1969. For those of you who haven't read the book yet. It was epic, and it was really considered groundbreaking at the time. Nobody talked about death except Elizabeth, and um, she was scolded and chided for it. Um, you know, Elizabeth, to me, really helped me. Ken, your mom's work was um, of such importance to me in my own life. I read on death and dying in college, as so many of us did, um, as part of my psych curriculum, and it, it was life-changing, but then when my son was diagnosed with a rare neurodegenerative disorder, um, I read on children and death. And what her book did for me was it really encouraged me to live. Um, 
I, I all of a sudden I felt energized after reading that book, which, you know, is a typical, I think for people that, um, you know, hear the title, like how could you feel energized after reading that? But I really did because it was a, it was a really just an encouragement to say, okay, go live. You know what? So Austin's going to die. That was my son's name. And, um, but in the meantime, every day until he died, he's living. So go live. Do you hear that from other people, Ken? Do other people talk about your mom's work as just, even though it has death in the title of, you know, two-thirds of her books, do they talk about how inspirational her work is to them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we get calls, you know, every week from people who've read the book and it's inspired them to kind of take their grief and do something positive with it. Um you know, whether it's become a hospice worker or a nurse, work in metal industry, something like that, or start a, you know, start a hospice somewhere in a third world country. It's uh, just amazing how much, uh, you know, it's, that book has changed people's lives now for some 45 years. It's just shocking. So, you know, you just brought up uh, uh, an interesting thought, which the name of our show is Transformed by Grief, How to Live an Abundant Life After Loss. And I really think it's possible. And I uh, read your mom's book, The Tunnel in the Light. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? That book so touched my heart because it was about the fact that life may end, but love continues and therefore relationships continue. Can you tell us your thoughts on The Tunnel in the Light? Um, well, my mom had a lot of great books, um, but that book seems to be more popular than some of the other ones. I think the reason for that is because the earlier books, my mom, you know, she was a writer because obviously she wrote the books, but um, that book in particular was actually taken from her lectures. And at that point, my mother had been giving lectures for decades. And so the kind of, I guess, the pacing of the book is different and that it's kind of more conversational versus this kind of uh, possibly more a dry kind of description of an event. You know, my mother's speaking now about things she's been talking about for decades, so it has mm-hmm. a better flow in some ways. Uh, but there's a lot of wonderful stories in that book about um, not only life and near death, but um, people who have died and, and come back, whether it's been an accident or so forth, and they all have the same experience, you know, seeing the light and seeing loved ones who are gone be- to the beyond. And mm-hmm. so I guess there's a lot of hope in that, that, you know, maybe their loved ones are not gone forever. Maybe there is an afterlife, and I think people want to hear that message of hope. And uh, she also discusses, you know, the fact that, you know, while we're all going to die, you know, death is possibly an ending of one life form, but the beginning of another. And it doesn't mean that, you know, when your loved one dies, you know, you just stop your relationship with that person. I mean, I've lost people and you've lost people, but we still have a relationship with our memories and with how they meant, you know, played into your lives. So I think it's it's important to remember that and that, you know, when their lives end, your life continues and you should use their life as a kind of inspiration to kind of go on and do other things. So, you know, that brings up a good point. So what did your mom... And I want to say your dad, too, right? Didn't you tell me that your dad has passed away as well? Yeah, my dad passed about uh, 20, 21 years ago now. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, you know, has been, um, you know, you grew up around 
Death and Dying, and you know, you you were young when your mom wrote on Death and Dying and these other books. How did it affect you? Um, yeah, I grew up, you know, being exposed to more death, and certainly at least uh, was you know common in America. I mean, in third world countries, you know, death is more a part of one's life because people die at an earlier age, and you know, children die more often. Um, but having been exposed to so much to death, you know, I decided at a young age I wanted to really live a full, happy life, and um, maybe not exactly, but kind of live my life as if you know each day were my last, and be aware that the clock is ticking and we don't have forever. So, yeah, you know, go out and live a full life and live it, you know, with meaning. And I think one of my mom's most important messages was that, um, you know, we get to the end of our lives, and a lot of people have regret. And she thought those regrets possibly kind of give us the fear of death itself. She said that if we mm-hmm. live our lives in a very full, love-based manner, that we won't be so afraid of death, you know? I mean, if you lived a full life and not had many fears or challenged your fears, gotten over your fears, then, you know, it's not so bad dying because you've had this wonderful full life. Right, right. That makes perfect sense. So as we're going into the new year, what do you think if your mom were alive? What would she say to you? And, you know, okay, so go live your life. What would what do you think she would say for 2015, Ken? Go do this. You know, she would say don't have any regrets. Whatever it is that you're afraid of, go out there today, tomorrow, and challenge it. I mean, because, you know, you get to the end of your life and you think back and so many of the fears we have are so silly. I mean, you know, what did people think of our new dress, our haircut? You know, what do people think of me? You know, we're always worried about what other people think. We should be more worried about, you know, our own selves. Go out there and whatever it is you're putting off, do it now because you never know, you know, one day it's all over. And so, you know, whatever it is I want to do within reason, you know, I go out and do. I've lived a very full life and, you know, some would say kind of a dream life, you know, traveling around the world and, seeing all these exotic places and meeting interesting people. And, uh, you know, I just kind of remind myself to keep at it. You know, when I get down, just, you know, not every day is going to be glorious and glamorous, but overall, you know, keep moving forward. How did you, how did your mom stay positive? And I mean, your mom was around more deaths and more dying, you know, than, um, especially when I read that your mom had, you know, gone to the concentration camps. Um, your mom suffered profound personal loss um, throughout her life. How do you think your mom stayed positive, you know, throughout that and in spite of being around so much death? Because one of the things I hear from people, especially as we're going into this new year, is, Diane, how am I going to get up tomorrow and do this. I just lost my child, wife, sister, husband, you know. What what would you say? How, how did your mother stay so positive in light of all of the death and the loss that she herself endured? Some days I got to admit I am completely mystified because some days I join <laughs> her and I go, wow, that was pretty heavy. <laughs> you know, like I've got to recover from that. Um, you know, my mother just thought as a gift to be able to help people, you know, through this journey into death. And, she, you know, I mean, she just said so much in life is perspective. I mean, 
we can see things as gifts or as curses. It's up to us to kind of receive these messages and to kind of interpret them the way we want. She would say, each of us can either be a Mother Teresa or a Hitler. You know, it's our choice how to view these things. You know, like I know your story, and you could sit there and grieve over your lost son the rest of your life, or you mm-hmm. can do what you do, and you go out and you help people, and you turn it into a positive event that, you know, help other people through their grief, which you didn't necessarily always have. Right. Well, that that's true, and, and there's a tremendous um, gift, really, to me, that comes from that. And, um, you know, I was reading an article recently by where Zach Williams, Robin Williams' son, was saying that in helping others, he's healing himself, you know, through grief. And whether your thing is planting trees or, you know, volunteering at a shelter or starting a foundation or doing something as being a reading buddy for a kid in school, you know, I think that there's profound uh, gain to be had from the simple act of kindness and and helping others, you know, in in some capacity. Um, you know, what about you? Have you endured significant loss, and how did you kind of bounce back or or go toward, um, you know, a life of abundance after after loss? Um, yeah, we've all had grief, whether it's little grief, big grief, you know, whatever. You you know, you lost a girlfriend. You lost. I mean, didn't lose, but I mean, you know. Whether it's small things or big things, whether it's, you know, you've lost something, you loved a memento or a parent or your pet or whatever it is, you know, we've all had loss as well as I have. And um, one thing I do is I place myself in the the person or the pet or whatever it is that you lost. You imagine you were them. Say you died and you were, looking, mm-hmm. you know, in heaven and looking back at your family. You wouldn't want them to grieve the rest of your life. You'd want them to go on and live a very full life. So I, I put myself in the place of the people we lost, and I kind of honor them by trying to live more fully and more happy and, you know, just be a productive person um, because that's what they would want, you know, just like you would want, you know, your children or people around you to, you know, the, you'd want them to grieve that you're gone, but you wouldn't want them to spend the rest of their lives grieving over you. You'd want them to honor you or your memory or what you kind of gave to this life by doing things in a positive manner. Yeah, it's so that, true. That and, and you shared, yeah, totally. And you shared with me um, and, and listeners, just so you know, before someone comes on the show, I usually talk to them and we do a little bit of a pre-interview and during the pre-interview, Ken, you were telling me that you lost um, one of your beloved pets, your most right. beloved pet, mm-hmm. and that that was a, a specific, you know, a really difficult turning point for you. So what you're saying is that you, um, how long ago was that? Uh, it's been just over a year now. Wow. So, if you so can for example, share for example, you- I can I can go out and I can work in. You know, shelters for animals. I can make donations to, you know, our our agency that helps cats or things like that to kind of honor the pet I lost. So, you know, kind of turn my grief into something positive that will help other cats or other animals or other pets kind of have better lives. Right. And I think, too, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, okay, what I was reading, you know, in your mom's work 
you know, and take this as an example of your pet. I mean, I think when those of us lose a loved one or a beloved pet, you know, there's also a, a call to action that I think that happens. It doesn't have to be, you know, an outward action. And I think this is really important for listeners. It doesn't have to be going and volunteering or planting a tree or starting a foundation or doing whatever. I mean, sometimes the best gift that we can give, and this holds true for um, the guy who called a little bit ago about um, that was a a retired cop and, and former military. Sometimes the best gift that we can give is to look within our immediate household, um, other pets and other loved ones, and just be determined to love them better as often as we can. Love them more completely. Be present. You know what? If we, you know, if we don't do it 100% correctly and well, do it better. Do it better for the next person. Park the Facebook. Get off the phone. Do the thing that you need to do to bring a smile to somebody's face, but be fully engaged and fully present. And uh, as a way to honor, you know, either the the pet that you lost, love your other pets and care for them more or better or differently, or your loved ones more or better or differently. I mean, I think that's one thing that I've learned, you know, from... Um, your mom's work, and forgive me for not remembering this quote, but it has to do with unconditional love, including the love of oneself. Is it, can you, do you remember, didn't she talk a lot about that? And didn't she have something with that at the end of her life or toward the end of her life about loving herself? Oh, yeah, it's very interesting because um, she uh, had a stroke and she was partially paralyzed for nine years and she was very frustrated that... Uh, she felt she had kind of done her work and she was ready to go. And she said she felt like an airplane that's uh, on the runway but hasn't been given clearance to take off. And she was ready for nine years to die. You know, for her, it was no big deal. And so she was frustrated. She couldn't just die when she wanted to. And she was very angry for quite a while. And she said, I want to die. I'm going to die soon. You know, she kept, you know, always talking about, I'm ready to die. I want to die. You know, things don't happen as you want it. And so what happened was a few weeks before she actually died, she came to me and she said, you know what? I'm not ready to die. After nine years of listening to her saying, I want to die, I want to die. <laughs> and so I was just completely baffled. I was like, what do you mean? You don't want to die. You can't possibly be afraid of death all of a sudden. And she didn't say anything. And uh, a few weeks later, she died. And it, it puzzled me for about two years. And finally, I realized that, you know, my mother always said that we're here to kind of learn lessons. And her lesson was to learn to kind of be loved and to let go and let other people take care of her. It's kind of like she had trouble, you know, teach the teacher. You know, it's hard to teach them, even though they're giving the lesson. They don't always uh, learn it so well. So anyway, when she finally learned her lesson and was able to accept, you know, being taken care of and being loved and letting go of being in control, then uh, she learned her final lesson and she passed. Wow. Such a powerful story. And also, too, can you share with people um, about, don't you have a video clip of, um, wasn't there a dying patient that your mom was talking to, and there's a YouTube of of your mom talking to this woman? Don't you guys have a, you have a YouTube channel, right? Yeah, the foundation has a YouTube channel, 
And uh, there's a really powerful clip of my mother talking to a woman who um, is paralyzed and she feels like she is a burden to her family. And so she wants to know, um, you know, why she shouldn't just go into a home and leave her family alone. It's called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Speaks to Dying Patient, Nova Interview, 1983. It's on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really amazing to watch my mother just talk to this uh, woman and uh, tell her that, you know, she's teaching her her children a lesson about what it's like to let go, just like my mother kind of couldn't let go of being in control and that it was time for her children to take care of her and that teaches them a valuable lesson. Right. So it's, again, so powerful. And um, I've seen that clip and it's it's really something moving. Um, you know, and on to speaking of your mom, one of the questions that I hear all the time from people, and I'm going to ask you if you can help clarify this. And so the five stages of death and dying, your mom said, you know, there are these five stages. And the question I get all of the time is that do the five stages apply also to the grieving? Can you help clear that up? And just um, the five stages just briefly. We, and whether... We could spend a long time on that, but... Um... <laughs> Where should I start with that? Uh, number one, I'd like to point out the fact that um, if you look in the back of On Death and Dying, mm-hmm. um, which is somewhere around page 250, there's a chart. And if you look at the chart, my mother actually has, uh, I, I haven't counted them, but there's approximately 10 stages that my mother talks about. And so I'm a little baffled why everyone always focuses on the five stages when there's other stages. She talks about preparatory grief, um, uh, different things, um, partial denial, uh, hope is a big thing that's, you know, present throughout all these so-called stages. Mm-hmm. So uh, just keep in mind that, you know, while my mother has chapters on each of the five stages, she did talk about other stages. And so really, it's not really the five stages. People get so hung up that there's not five stages. You know, my mm-hmm. mother would agree, there's more stages. Um and again, it's just a guideline. It's not, you know, people don't go through them one, two, three, four, five. Right, right. Um, so, but anyway, yes, um, you know, they can certainly be applied to grief, to, you know, many situations of loss in general, you know, grief, loss, whatever, what have you. Uh, but again, I want to point out that, you know, people don't go through all of them. They don't go through them in order. People sometimes don't go through any of them, you know. It's just a guideline of some phases that my mother did witness when she talked to several hundred patients. So, and even, you know, as early as uh, 1973, I think, four years after the book came out, she said, let's get past the stages. So, you know, let's not get hung up on these five stages. While they're useful, you know, they're just a guideline in some situations. So before we thank you for explaining that, so before we sign off, I wanted to ask you, so what do you think in the coming year for you? You know, you you had a fairly recent loss in the last year. What would living an abundant life look for you in 2015? Uh, well, I also had a heart attack this year. So, you know, again, maybe, you know, you could call it a, I don't know, it's not a near-death experience per se, but it's a reminder that, you know, our time here is finite and, uh, you know, let's not waste our time, whatever wasting time means, um, but go out and, you know, live each day fully and not get hung up on the little things and just challenge, you know, your fears. You know, if you have a bucket list, start working on it 
and just don't put off things. I mean, now is the time to do things because you know, tomorrow's promise to no one. <laughs> right, so exactly. I'm going to go out and uh, just be happy and, you know, live with an open heart, challenge the fears, and uh, just try to live bigger and better. That's a great plan. I like it. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. And, and listeners, thank you so much you know, for tuning in tonight to Transformed by Grief, How to Live an Abundant Life After Loss. I'm Diane Gray. I hope that you join us again here on Funeral Radio Network. Um, and together, I know that together we grieve and together we can heal. So thanks so much for being a part of our show tonight. Have a great night. Bye.